welcome to the eighth episode of the HR Coffee Time podcast. And if we haven't met before, I'm your host, Faye Wallace. I'm a career coach and an outplacement specialist with a background in HR. And I've made this podcast especially for you to help you have a fulfilling and successful career without having to work yourself into the ground. And in today's episode, I have a great interview for you with Jo Mortimer from Ocean Aspire. In it, she shares her expertise on apprenticeships, explaining how and why you might want to set up an apprenticeship scheme for your organisation. And she also talks us through the different types of HR apprenticeships available, just in case this might be right for you, or in case you're in a senior HR role and you're thinking of making HR apprenticeships available to grow and develop your team. But even if apprenticeships aren't on your radar at all at the moment and they're not something you've really been thinking about, I'd really encourage you to have a listen. I know that I learned loads from the wonderful Jo while I was talking to her. And before we dive into the interview, I just wanted to let you know about my Power Up Your LinkedIn Profile online course. Because I'm making this course available to you and all of my HR Coffee Time subscribers, it's going to be completely free for you for two weeks from Monday the 4th of October. So the Power Up Your LinkedIn Profile course is particularly useful if you're looking for a new role or you're thinking of looking for a new role quite soon or in the future. But even if you're not thinking about moving on to a new job, having a great LinkedIn profile, I think it really is an essential part of your professional brand nowadays. It really pays to actually get to grips with LinkedIn and feel confident with it. And to give you some statistics to back it up that LinkedIn has shared, they also might help convince you that it is worthwhile spending some time on your profile. So Those statistics are that 94% of recruiters use LinkedIn when they're trying to fill a job vacancy and four people are hired every minute on LinkedIn. But I do know that a lot of people feel uncomfortable with the idea of LinkedIn because they either don't really like social media, the idea about having their information in a public place, or they're just not sure how to create their profile in the best way, or they don't really understand how to use LinkedIn properly. It all feels a bit mystifying and a bit overwhelming. And if any of that sounds familiar for you, the course is here to help. And if you're worried about being motivated enough to work your way through the whole thing, I'm putting lots of steps in place to help you stay on track and get the most out of it. So to start with, I'll send you one module per day over eight days. So that means that you only have one fairly quick task to complete each day. So that means that instead of having the whole course to complete in one go, instead you're getting it in little bite-sized amounts, which I know just feels a lot more doable and less overwhelming. And I'll also be setting up a private LinkedIn group that you'll have access to where you can ask me any questions that you have about LinkedIn. You can ask me any questions you've got about your profile as you're working your way through the course. Then one final bonus to mention to you is that I'll also be hosting a free accountability co-working session on Wednesday the 13th of October from 12 o'clock to one o'clock. So it's happening at lunchtime. 
And if you listen to last week's podcast episode, which was all about coping with a busy workload, you'd have heard me mention the idea of accountability sessions then. Now, all it actually means <laughs> is that you can join me and anyone else who'd like to use the accountability session for working on their LinkedIn profile. I'll send you the link to join me on Zoom. And once everyone's joined, I'll ask you what you'd like to focus on in the hour. You'll let me know and then we'll all mute our microphones and just crack on with getting our work done. So I'll make myself available for any questions and can go into breakout rooms with you if you need me to. But mainly that hour is going to be there for you just to really catch up if you find that you've fallen behind or you like the idea of getting it done with that level of accountability built in. So now that I've talked to you lots about it, if you'd like to take advantage of the course being available for free for two weeks, just drop me an email to let me know and I'll send you the details on how you can access it as soon as it's live. You can reach me at hello at brightskycareercoaching.co.uk or you can sign up to it directly online, but the web address is a bit of a long one. It's resources.brightskycareercoaching.co.uk brightskycareercoaching.co.uk forward slash LinkedIn. So I'm a bit worried that by reading that out, that's too much for people to remember. So I've also put the link in the show notes so that you can just click straight onto the link and then sign straight up. But now after all of that information about LinkedIn, it's time to get back to apprenticeships. And I think we should move on to the main part of the show. So I'm really excited to have Joe here today from Ocean Aspire. And Joe, before we get started, it would be wonderful if you could just tell everyone a little bit about yourself and your organization and how you've developed this fabulous expertise as far as apprenticeships are concerned. Yeah, I spent 20 years working for a large multi-site organisation as an apprenticeship programme manager. Before that, I was a training officer. I'd been supporting apprentices, but we bought in our apprenticeship provision. Ultimately, we got other people to deliver it for us. When I became apprenticeship programme manager, I then moved into developing those apprenticeship programs to suit the needs of the business. And obviously, you can imagine over 20 years, 25 years, the format of the business and how we were delivering um, our products changed quite a lot. And as a result, we needed different training for our staff. And that process required developing those apprenticeship programs into being something quite different so that the needs of the business became paramount. So I took on that role and I really enjoyed it and actually became the guru of the skills funding agency funding rules, which are a minefield of information. So much so that I had people that I would say it's on page 15 and they'd like, no, and that's sad that you know that. <laughs> um, so so I, I was in that role for nearly 16 years, I would say, and spent a lot of time working with other organisations. I chaired the local training providers association at one point, spent some time working with the ESFA, the Education and Skills Funding Agency. That's the other thing that happens in apprenticeships is you use a lot of acronyms and uh, abbreviation. Spent a lot of time working with the Education and Skills Funding Agency based on Ofsted inspections that we'd had that were really successful, especially around safeguarding and presenting to a lot of their members as well. Yeah, that, that's where I've come from in my apprenticeship journey. I was made redundant last October, like so many other people, and decided at that point that 
I could go and work somewhere else in another organization, but I'd spent so much time doing that. I wanted to be my own boss and I wanted to drive a few agendas of my own that I'm still trying to do <laughs> with the right support. And those, and I'd also been heavily involved in mental health training at my last organization. So that's what I've been focusing on, but I've got a huge apprenticeship knowledge and especially with employers. So looking at how employers can develop their own apprenticeship programs or if it is right for them to get a training provider to come in. So, yeah, I'm now throwing in the journey of the apprenticeship consultancy side of things. And yeah, that's where I am today. Fantastic. Thank you so much for filling us in. And it's really exciting for me to see Oh, I hate the word your journey. It sounds really trite, doesn't it? But to see how everything's progressing, because we actually met um, mm. when I was brought in to provide outplacement support mm. at the organisation you work for when they were making redundancies. Yeah. And from the minute that I met you, this sort of passion and knowledge for apprenticeships. And when we caught up the other day and we're just having a chat, it seemed like a brilliant idea to have you on here because... Obviously, my background before becoming a career coach was in HR mm -hmm. and the last organisation I worked for, we did have apprentices there, but I was never involved in the scheme in any way, shape or form. Someone else looked after it. And I feel a little bit embarrassed admitting that I know very little about apprenticeships, really. A lot of my clients and the people I work with tend to have already begun their careers they're at least a few years into it if not many years into it and so apprenticeships hasn't always come up as a topic but what seems really exciting is the more I have started to look into it and just from hearing little snippets from you as well is actually there's so much more to them yeah. than I think we first realized and they have just developed so much compared to when I was at school and you first heard of apprenticeships it really is a whole different ball game now, isn't it? Absolutely. There's this theory that apprenticeships are for the trades. That's one theory that a lot of people go down. And also that they're only for young people. And that's definitely not the case. There's huge campaigns about filling skills gaps and retraining your current staff or training up, upskilling your current staff using apprenticeships. And when I won't go into the detail of how the, the development of apprenticeships has happened over the last 10 years, because honestly, I can drop you off to sleep with that. And I'm sure that's not what you want your listeners to do. But when the Richard Review was interviewed, uh, was introduced by the government, that was probably about six years ago or so, that enabled the higher apprenticeship route. So there are apprenticeships up to level seven, degree level apprenticeships, and you can do an apprenticeship in any sector. And that's what's really important to remember is that even if you have been trained in a role, if there's something you want to, to develop further to a higher level, then there's potentially an apprenticeship that can do that for you. So I think that's really important to remember, really. It's really interesting. And so I thought for our chat today, we could take it from two approaches. Yep. One, one approach is thinking for all the listeners who are sitting in their HR role and are thinking of maybe bringing in an apprenticeship scheme for people within the organisation. So to develop skill sets, make sure, like you were saying earlier, that the training is fit for the business, is going to help the organisation develop and grow. But then I also thought it would be interesting for us just to spend a bit of time considering HR apprenticeships and how they may actually be something that could be very relevant for 
the person yeah. listening, whether that's because they actually decide, oh, maybe an apprenticeship is the right solution for me, or they think, do you know what? Maybe we need to start thinking about offering an HR apprenticeship or HR apprenticeships within our organization to build up my team. Does that sound okay? Yeah, that's perfect. Wonderful. What would you like to start with? Which is the easiest thing to tackle first, do you think? Probably the being an apprentice how do you become an apprentice what's the best route to do that and what are the options so if it's okay like one of the things that's quite important for people to understand when they are looking at whether or not as a member of staff you want to become an apprentice or you think that might be a route for your development because there are many other routes we all know you could go and do CIPD and you can learn a lot about HR or training or very many other areas within their within their their basket of qualifications but as far as an apprenticeship concerned is it's first of all understanding where are you at the moment and what level do you want to get to so if you're sitting there listening to this and you're thinking, actually, I'm really interested in doing my own apprenticeship, how do you get on to an apprenticeship? And the best place to go is um, the apprenticeship.gov UK website. That can explain to you what it's like about being an apprentice and the sort of pay structures, because that's the other advantage of doing an apprenticeship aside from any other um, training route sometimes, maybe not CIPD, a university specifically, you can pay thousands of pounds to go to university and yet you can get paid thousands of pounds to do an mm. apprenticeship and you learn and quite often most employers will give you a job at the end of that apprenticeship. Um, most of the employers that I've done any work with or been speaking to recently have all had apprenticeship adverts out with a definite offer of employment at the end of the apprenticeship programme. So that's something to remember is making sure that you're taking the right route as far as which sector is it you want to work in. I know we're focusing on HR. Within HR, you've also got learning and development. There's a separate learning and development apprenticeship to the HR specific apprenticeships. So it's, it's remembering all of those things as well is which are the subject areas that you want to do. Yeah, get onto the apprenticeship.gov UK website and you can also use, there's a search engine in there called Find an Apprenticeship. If you are in a, a rural area, you can find the nearest apprenticeship for that sector mm. to you. Or if you're willing to travel around and move, then, you know, where would you like to go and travel, live, whatever? Which sort of organisations? That's the other thing as well. Another good route is looking, searching, Googling sectors or businesses that you would like to work in and whether or not they are employing apprentices. And for those businesses, which I know we'll come on to in more detail, but for those businesses, it's really important for them to think about is an recruiting an apprentice the best way to the recovering, helping their business recover? I was made redundant like so many other people, but the company that I worked for are now recruiting more staff and they've just set up a whole new apprenticeship program, mm. which incidentally we did right before lockdown started last year. But obviously that was put on the back burner. It's not something that takes a few months to write. It's something that takes a length of time that you need to really concentrate on. But it's one of those things that um, you need to know what your route is as an apprentice yourself. Okay, thank you for just giving us a bit of oversight, well, insight into how you go about finding an apprenticeship. But if you're listening to this and you're in an HR role already, and perhaps you're you know, thinking of doing your CIPD qualification. So for example, if I think of myself, when I was in my last HR role, I decided to do the CIPD level seven qualification. Yeah. It didn't even occur to me, I don't know if it actually would have been an option at the time, that I could have done that as an apprenticeship. All I thought was, 
okay, I've got to find a training provider. And I ended up doing it at university. And then I upgraded it to a master's because I thought, oh, for it to become a master's, all I have to do is this dissertation <laughs> and one other thing. And oh my goodness, it was so much work. But so if there, if there is someone listening to this and like I was, they're sitting there in an HR role and they're thinking, I want to get the next level for my CIPD or I want to get CIPD qualified, can they just ask their employer to set up an apprenticeship scheme where they are? How would that work? Yeah, they absolutely can. So as an employer, um, you can you have different routes, basically. You need to look first about understanding what the need of the business and how much value might an apprenticeship add to that business. I've talked to some employers and on the apprenticeship.gov website, they've got quite some quite good statistics around employers who have recruited apprentices, used apprenticeships as a training and upskilling form for their own staff and those that have also done their own apprenticeship program and they're really high statistics they're all above 78 79 percentage of satisfaction and how much added skill development it's given to the organization so you need to understand what your business where your business is at and whether or not you have the capacity to be able to run that apprenticeship yourself so if you've got an established learning and development team with the expertise are qualified in skills teaching roles? Are they assessor qualified? All those sorts of things are the things that you should think about. And if they're not, then maybe think about, is it a, a provision you could buy in? Because there are training providers all across the country that specialize in apprenticeship delivery. And I've worked with a number of them in the past where, so a member of staff exactly did this with me. She was reported directly to me. She wanted to do a management apprenticeship at level I think it was level seven she wanted to do. Yeah, the the best route for her to do it was to go to a university because the higher apprenticeships are delivered by universities. So we weren't going to be obviously delivering it. So then we did some research between us as to which university was the best for her to go to and which was the most suitable program delivery model. And that's the other thing that you need to think about as an employer is what delivery model is going to best suit the potential apprentice and also your business. We worked in a very seasonal business. And so most of the delivery for her apprenticeship was during a time when it was our quieter period in the learning and development department. When our centres were busy, we were a bit quieter. So she could go and do most of her apprenticeship during our quieter time. So it's understanding those various models. If you are gearing towards setting it up yourself as an organization, then there are definitely documents you need to look at in the way of compliance, because there's a lot of compliance behind an apprenticeship. There's the funding compliance, so there's funding rules, there's the Ofsted compliance, so you are Ofsted inspected, so you need to look at you know the Ofsted inspection framework. And then there's other things that you need to consider, like you have to get approval to become a registered organization for apprenticeship training providers. And there's a database of who those approved providers are at the moment. And going through that process isn't an easy and quick thing to do. So if you've got someone that does want to do an apprenticeship and they, they're in a position to start sooner, it might be better to look at local training providers than it would be to maybe set up your own. But if you can see a prospective business idea long term of setting up your own business, then it's good to start small and maybe have three or four and then build them up. Uh, in the way of numbers. 
I see what you're saying. So it seems like it would uh, not be the best idea in the world to set up your own apprenticeship scheme if you've just got one person no. you're going to put through it. But if there is a department within the organisation where actually you need to have quite a few people who you want to develop the skill sets for them, mm. then, you, then that's when you would really start thinking about actually having your own apprenticeship scheme. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's great to get that clarification. Thank you. I've realised that as we've been talking, I've just leapt straight into talking about level seven. And it wasn't until I really started looking into the options for my training as far as the CIPD was concerned that I even fully realised there were these level five and level seven. And it's been the same with my coach training that I've done since then, actually. So just for anyone listening who isn't aware of the levels, if they haven't really looked into this before or it's been a long time since they've last done their study or their formal training, could you just quickly run us through what the different levels are within apprenticeships? So what the numbers are and what those numbers mean? Okay, so the apprenticeship levels come in varying levels. They mostly are two to seven. They define the level at which someone is working. So at level two, that would be the level someone goes in at an organisation, maybe at the very start of their employment career, very junior level member of staff and, and learning those basic functions to do that role. Then level six might be someone who's in a manager, managerial role or a strategic role. That's equivalent to a bachelor degree um, level. So, for example, in HR, there are a um, number of levels. You can do HR support, which is at level three, and that's an 18-month qualification. And that's gained, uh, geared at someone who is supporting the frontline staff. Then you've got a um, level five, which is a HR consultant partner apprenticeship that can take up to 36 months to complete. And that's but geared at someone who delivers um, the lead HR functions within an organisation. And then there's a new apprenticeship, the senior people professional, which is at level seven. And that's geared towards somebody who is in that senior role. So it could be someone who is gearing towards that directorship or in a much more strategic type role. And it, the, the interesting thing, we were comparing about CIPD and how that's not always the route for someone. But some of the apprenticeships actually involve CIPD qualifications mm -hmm. or parts of them. So that's quite useful if you want to do parts of the CIPD, but not all of it. Or if you wanted to get that level of qualification that you were saying about your development and how you went and did your dissertation, that academic route, that 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 function. If, if somebody asked me to do a dissertation, I'd fall apart. That'd be me done. And I think that's where my passion for apprenticeship comes from. I'm much more geared towards on the job learning, developing as I'm going along. And I think that's what you get with apprenticeships. And obviously, yes, at level seven, they are more intense because they are looking at strategic level development. But it also does give you that opportunity to learn something and then immediately try and Im implement it within that workplace. So I think that's one thing that's key to remember is, is those levels are not always going to suit everyone. And, but sometimes you have to push yourself a little bit more and do a level slightly above what you might be working at. Because to a certain degree for some organisations, the reason for doing apprenticeship is to fill skills gaps or to upskill staff ready for future development. That was definitely what we used to use them for in my last organisation was um, I know many of the HR staff we had, they wanted to do level three and we pushed them to do level five. And now they are HR managers 
of on their own accord. That's a, a real achievement for them and us. Yeah, I bet they're really pleased that you gave them that encouragement. It's interesting to hear what you said about it being a great alternative without being highly academic. It's true, though. And, 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 but also, it, that's not to say, I mean, the, the apprenticeship, uh, and I know from working with people on HR and management, the apprenticeship assessment process does involve them writing reports and it does involve them doing presentations and research and all those sorts of things so there's there's an equivalence in some respect to some academic aspects but definitely not a 10,000 10,000 word dissertation that's what my question was going to be um oh, to right. you. I haven't done an apprenticeship so I'm not really sure what how the assessment works exactly are they looking for more evidence of the learning being implemented. Mm. So the, the, the Richard Review brought out a very different model to how we'd previously been doing apprenticeships. We used to, I remember when I first started working with apprentices back in the late 90s, and we used to get them to collect evidence that they'd done things within their job role. And, and they'd have a lever arch file that was just full of paperwork. And now it's, as you can imagine, it's all done on a computer and there's not this evidence gathering requirement. But what you do have to do is you have knowledge, skills and attitudes that you have to then demonstrate that you can meet the apprenticeship standards. So every apprenticeship sector will have its own written set of standards. And then when you've completed the apprenticeship learning part of the journey, you go on to what's called the endpoint assessment. And to become or to get to that stage, you have to have shown and demonstrated and be able to evidence that you've met all the other criteria. So there are things that you will have done, had professional discussions with your line manager, or if you've dealt with a specific difficult situation, like a difficult member of staff, which was one of the podcasts that you you, you had go out uh, <laughs> earlier in your series, I noticed. If you've done that and dealt with that in a professional way, then that's a good piece of evidence that you can use and bring to your endpoint assessment process. And then each of the different sectors and the different levels will have different activities as part of the endpoint assessment. So quite commonly, you'll have a professional discussion with your endpoint assessor. And the endpoint assessor is someone who works outside of the organisation or outside of the training provider association. So they quite often will be you know, a very independent person, not know the apprentice. You have an interview with them. You might have to do a presentation. One of the apprenticeships, there's a research product project and you have to present your research project and then you're asked questions about it at the end. And this is all done remotely these days. Very rarely are the endpoint assessments carried out face to face in a room, although it has been known in the past. But yeah, when we went into lockdown, we were still able to put people through their endpoint assessment because the endpoint assessment organisations have all been really good at getting remote and, vis and virtual assessments carried out through, through their processes. So it's worked really well. I hadn't thought about that, actually, the fact that, yeah, the assessments will all be happening virtually now. Mm. I think there can be a big advantage to that. I know I've done, well, I'm slightly addicted to doing training anyway, but I did some training this year, but I wouldn't have been able to do if it wasn't available online and remotely. So no, yeah. that sounds like a, a, po a positive thing in many ways. I know lots of people prefer face-to-face. -face. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, one of the endpoint assessment organizations that we used in my previous organization, they, they started video and remote professional discussions and interviews with apprentices and the assessment process, even the meetings in planning the endpoint assessment with the, the trainer. They were all done remotely because it just saved on money and time as well. Our learners were all dispersed all over the country. And geographically, that's the other thing to consider is the apprenticeships I'm talking about predominantly here are relating to England because there mm. is a different process in England as there is in Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland. Although oh, really? not hugely different, it is worth if you are based in any of those in uh, any other countries other than England. And I am Welsh, so I totally sympathize if you are then make sure that you understand your own government local government's requirements or country government's requirements so when you were in your last role joe and you were responsible for running all or overseeing all of the apprenticeships was that just for england or was it other countries in the uk as well it was predominantly England because the majority of our base our, our centers were based in england however we've got they, I must stop saying we, they have a few in Wales and Scotland. But because our head office was based in England, all of our staff could do an, an English apprenticeship. Oh, so there are some anomalies. Um, it also can depend on where they are from originally. So if you've got a Scottish member of staff working in a Scottish centre or base for a Scottish company, then they would need to adhere to the Scottish mm. government mm. guidelines around apprenticeships and compliance. Which but, makes sense. Yes, it does. But the principles are all pretty similar. Very, yeah, the principles are all pretty much the same. It's mostly the terminology they use around things like, we haven't mentioned functional skills, but you do have to achieve functional skills, qualifications at level two, at grade two, sorry. Please don't ask me to work out what that is these days, because since they've changed it to letters, I'm just confused on that one at the moment. But yeah, they, you, you have those similarities across the countries, but the funding rules are definitely the bit that needs to be adhered to with regard to the individual country. And I suppose that is one of the benefits of having apprenticeships is the funding element, because I remember when the apprenticeship levy first came in. Yeah. But again, I don't know a huge amount about it where I've never had that responsibility. So it would just be great to hear a little bit more about that and how that might impact on an organisation deciding whether to offer apprenticeships or pay for other kinds of training for their people. Yeah, so every organisation over a certain size will be paying the apprenticeship levy. And, and each of these organisations, you know, if you're, you, your listeners are listening to this, they, sh they probably know whether or not their organisation is paying the levy or not. But the levy is an interesting thing because if you don't use it within a certain amount of time, so you have every organization that does pay it will have this pot of money. And if they don't use that pot of money, you lose it. So ultimately, it gets put back into a big pot, which what does it do? Does that go to the government? Probably. Does it go to smaller organizations? Doubt it, which is what it should do. But you can, if you don't use all of your levy pot, you can give your levy pot to an organization that is using or delivering apprenticeships and needs more money. So it's getting use back into an apprenticeship program somewhere. And that can be an organization that, that's connected to you, or it doesn't have to be. It can be any organization that you've got links to. 
So there's this funding route that, route that you've got this levy money that you're paying for. And the best route is to invest it back into your staff because mm. then you're actually getting some benefit out of the money that you're paying. There have been some recent some changes. The other route to funding or payments is an incentive payment program that the government have set up. We've constantly had incentive payments because the government had this target that they wanted. I think it was three million apprentices by 2020 and they didn't achieve it. But the incentive payments were one of those things that was supposed to be getting employers to buy into the apprenticeship route as part of a development. But the current apprenticeship incentive payment offer and something, I don't know when this is going to go out, but if you're listening to this and you're umming and ahhing about whether or not to take on an apprentice, the incentive payment offer in England expires on the 30th of September. I'll make um, sure that this episode goes out before then, don't worry. Okay. <laughs> um, so if, you're in, if your business is interested and you'd like to take up this offer, it's worth getting in there quick. And a payment of £3,000 for a new apprentice at any age who have an employment start date before the 30th of September. So as long as you employ them before the 30th of September, you must start their apprenticeship before the 30th of November. So you've got a month, two month leeway from their employment. So if you've got someone who's already employed, they've got that contract of employment. You just need to start their apprenticeship before the 30th of November. So you've got a bit of time to do that. And that incentive payment is in addition to the £1,000 that employers can already receive for hiring an apprentice who's aged 16 to 18. So there is that young person incentive. Or if they're aged 19 to 24 with an education healthcare plan, or if they've been in the care of the local authority. So this was a, a drive by the government to try and increase um, the employment of young people and, and people who'd been um, through the care system. And, and these incentive payments don't don't really get advertised. But again, you can go on the apprenticeship.gov UK website. They try and push them. But two years ago, we used to have adverts on the telly, the fire it up adverts about apprenticeships. And that only really happens around apprenticeship week, which is no good because that's in March. And there are a lot of businesses now that are struggling. I know I, I live in a, a, a seaside resort and the amount of the hotels and the um hospitality sector that are really struggling for staff they're looking at apprenticeships as an option but because they don't know these incentive payments exist so mm. it would help them so much more yeah I had no idea that there are all these incentive payments so it means mm. that as well as obviously having your people develop all of these skills actually the organization can benefit financially as well from yeah. deciding to take on apprentices Oh, thank you so much, Joe. Before I launch into asking you to explain how you would be able to help anyone who's listening and thinking about setting up an apprenticeship scheme at their organisation, is there anything that I haven't asked you or anything that we haven't covered that you think would be particularly interesting to share? I think it's worth if you're an employer and you're in an R and you think you're sitting there and you're thinking, why? Let's just get someone else to do it all. And why should we go down the apprenticeship route? My staff are all really happy. Are they? <laughs> Is my question. We used to think that our staff were all really happy, but actually it wasn't until we gave them more training and development. And that training and development benefited the business more than we realised that actually we realised they did become happier. I'm all about being happy. 
uh, and especially in your job role. So maybe ask your staff, are they happy? And if you do employment engagement surveys and things like that, analysing the, the outcome of those and what have you got in there that can uh, maybe feed in developing an apprenticeship programme or getting them onto an apprenticeship programme and what would that look like? I think, you know, that there are benefits. There are definitely benefits that you can do. You can fill your skills gap in your business. You can boost your employee motivation by investing in their development. And there's a huge improvement in retention. If you've had to make staff redundant and now you're recruiting, recruit apprentices because you're generally going to keep them for longer. Okay, especially if you've got an offer of employment at the end of their apprenticeship program, you can adapt the program to suit the needs of your business. So one thing that a really good training provider will tell you and anyone who has delivered apprenticeships. And the one thing I know from my experience, there isn't a one size fits all. Okay, there is a standard, but the standards are written by employers. And that's a thing that the Richard Review brought out for us previously to, to the change in apprenticeships. The organization I worked for, we had a, an apprenticeship where we had to we had to almost simulate 30 percent of the evidence they had to do to fit the apprenticeship. It wasn't something they were doing within their job role or it wasn't even something that we were doing in the business. So the apprenticeship standards are written by employers, are in that sector, involved in that sector, and there's a lot more flexibility. And the way that the model of your business fits needs to fit your needs, your business needs. So you don't want your staff coming out of it doing things that they're never going to use within the organization or within their role. And you can expand and upskill your workforce. If you've got someone that's really worth investing in, then what be better way to do it than with some quality training that gives them a certificate at the end that shows that they've reached a level they thought they would never reach. You know, so I can't, that's, that's my preaching done. Brilliant. Thank you. No, no not preaching, passion shining through. Thank you. Uh, you're, <laughs> you're clearly really passionate about it. And yep. something you said, I was reading um, something the other day about employee engagement survey results and how so many of them, one of the key areas that emerges is lack of career development opportunities mm. within mm. organisations. And um, yeah, I hadn't really thought before about how offering apprenticeships can be one way of tackling that and helping people feel that actually there are these opportunities. Yeah. So having shared all of this wonderful insights and information with us it would be great to know joe for anyone listening if they're thinking oh we probably should be setting up an apprenticeship scheme maybe we should be thinking about bringing on apprentices or perhaps they've got something in place but they know it could be better how could you potentially help them through your company okay so the, the first thing i would do is understand where your business is at now and support and look at what you're doing within your business and whether or not delivery, personal delivery yourself is the right option, or if you need to consider a training provider. Okay, we can find help you find the right program model. And if you decide that you do want to go down the route yourself, and I present your options to you, then we can help you develop that model. Okay, we can look at your own regional guidelines. So wherever you are in the country, we can look at that process and we can support you through that. So, for instance, in England, with the Register of Apprenticeship Training Provider approval process, we can help to support you to achieve that. 
We can help you with the staffing that's required for it, depending on the, the model chosen, and look at recruiting helping you to recruit into that role as well. You know, we can support you through understanding the funding rules. We can help you help to explain what those are. And that's a very interesting and fun session. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it is important and it's it's important to understand all the compliance, like I said before, or those compliance influences. We can, if you decide that getting a training provider in to help support delivery, then we can help you go through that process of how do you find the right training provider? I've got experience in some really good training providers that I know are delivering quality programs and how do you make that decision now how do you that someone is delivering a quality program because it's mostly just based on what you're in a website but understand we can help you if you once you have set up your program to make sure that you're keeping compliant so we can provide support continually through the apprenticeship program on a monthly or bi-monthly or however you want it six monthly support we can Make sure that you've got a, a robust quality assurance framework to make sure that whatever you're receiving in the way of a product, whether it be from internally from your own trainers or if it's externally, to make sure that you're getting the best quality mm -hmm. of service. Because that's something that quite often organizations will just they'll buy someone in and they'll just let them get on with it. But how do you know that what you're you're getting is fit for purpose, fit for your learners and actually fit for you as a business? Mm -hmm. And we can make sure that you're maximizing your return on your apprenticeship levy because none of us have got spare money to throw around these days. And COVID has made sure of that for many businesses that have are only now really getting back up to, to running. So you can go on our website. We've got a website and, and we'll put it in the program notes, I understand. Yeah, it's www.oceanaspire.co.uk. So we've got a whole section in there about apprenticeship consultancy. We can support you in making sure that you're safeguarding is up and running because that's all part of the compliance and the Ofsted inspection. And yeah, there's probably loads more that I could say, but. Limitless, all of these ways <laughs> you can help. So are you happy for people to connect with you on LinkedIn if they'd like to? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm on LinkedIn, Joe Mortimer and Ocean Aspire has a page on LinkedIn as well that you can connect to. Please do connect with me on that. Also on my website, I've got an inquiry form so you can contact us through that if you don't use LinkedIn and Ocean well, Aspire has a Facebook page. I haven't looked at your Facebook business page. I'll have to take a look at it. Yeah. So we do quite a lot of work with some other companies down in the Southwest as well. So quite often we link through on Facebook pages and share, share things. Okay, I will definitely have a look. And um, thank you. That's really helpful for everyone to know how they can find out more about you and more about the support that you can offer. So just to wrap up, I have pre-warned you because I've been more organised than normal. A couple of poor guests, I've forgotten to tell them I'm going to ask this bit. It, is there a book? that you would recommend to anyone listening that's one of your particular favorites yeah absolutely yeah you know, i've mentioned a couple of times about staff motivation and happiness and and engagement and all those sorts of things and and my book is the little book of luca and this is written by mike viking I think his name's Viking. I probably pronounced that really badly. And he's the CEO of Happiness Research Institute in Copenhagen. And he bought out another book be before, um, The Little B Book of Hug, I think it's called. Um, and he, his perception is that the Danes are the happiest nation. Okay, but this little book of happiness isn't just about Danish people and it isn't just about things that the Danes do or have. There's lots of... Um, things in here which I'm not a book 
person that sits and reads a book from start to finish. I like a book that I can just dip in and out of and find little bits of gold dust. So this um, covers the treasure hunt. So how he gathered all of the information for this book. And there's, there's sections where it's involved from different countries around the world. So it's not just about the Danes, the Swiss have got some in there and the ice, Icelandics. How do you measure happiness? That's always quite an interesting one to, to think about when we're talking about employer engagement surveys. Togetherness, money, health, freedom, trust, kindness, and then putting the pieces together. But my particular favourite, so I use this, I said I deliver a mental health first aid. And I use this within my mental health first aid course. I refer to this book because we talk a lot about stigma as well and how we like to break down the, the, the stigma around mental illness. And he says that to fight the stigma that surrounds mental illness, we need to listen more and learn more. We need to end the misunderstanding and the prejudice. We need to end the whispering about mental illness behind closed doors. And we need to say the scary words out loud so they lose their power and no one has to struggle on in silence. And that's five sentences, five lines even. And it's so powerful. And, and that's what this book gives me. It gives me those little bits of inspiration. And that's my little favourite one at the moment. So I thought I'd share that one with you. Oh, that sounds like a brilliant recommendation. Thank you so much. And thank you again for all your time today. I really appreciate you sharing all of your wisdom and knowledge with the listeners. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. I really hope that you found it helpful and interesting. If you have enjoyed the podcast, I would be extremely grateful if you'd be kind enough to rate and review it for me on Apple Podcasts, because that makes a big difference in encouraging Apple to show the show to people who haven't heard of it before. But thank you so much for listening and I'll be back next week. Bye.